The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you're free how you doing happy tuesday i'm leslie marshall welcome or welcome back only true democracy and talk and i'm really glad that you listen to us on the radio on our podcast on our stream or watch us on twitter's periscope uh live facebook live youtube live linkedin live all the ways you can see and hear uh, the program i also want to thank those of you who watched my ted talk yesterday we will be reposting that on the tedx site most people, uh, you know, check that out. It's my second TED Talk. My first one almost has 800,000 views. I'd be lo- loving to get up to a million. So if you you have uh, 18 or to 20 free minutes, uh, check out my first uh, TED Talk. Just go to the TEDx site or just Google it. Well, we've got a great show in store today. Dr. Robert Shapiro uh, is back in the house, a top economist who uh, worked with the Clinton administration, and we will be speaking with him. But right now, let's do a little thing we like to call ripped from headlines. I'm here in L.A. County, and regardless of vaccination status, I'm fully vaccinated, so is my husband and my two kids. Uh, residents here should wear face masks in indoor public places due to the continuing spread of the Delta coronavirus variant across the state of California. Now, that came out yesterday from the county's public health department. Now, listen, Israel is doing this. There are other people that are going back into lockdown or back on masks. Uh, The UK is another. Um, And uh, this variant uh, first identified in India. It is now the third most common in the state of California. In other words, 14.5% of coronavirus cases analyzed uh, in, in June this month um, from 4.7 in May, they were up um, to, uh, you know, according to the LA Times. So it is concerning, not just here in California. The Delta variant uh, allegedly affects children and teens and some of those groups that were not affected earlier and not affected as badly. Now, remember, if you're vaccinated, it doesn't mean you can't get COVID or this or any variant. It just means you won't get as sick or die, most likely. So please get vaccinated if you haven't. I got the Pfizer uh, vaccine. I didn't have any problem, uh, to be honest. My arm hurt a little after the second. Both my children had it. My daughter had a headache for about 24 hours. My my son had a fever for about three to four hours. And both of those were after the second uh, vaccination. Uh, I'm not pushing any one vaccine over the other, but uh, my kids and I um, got uh, Pfizer. My husband, I believe, got Moderna because that's what they gave out of the hospital. My husband had a sore arm and uh, felt a little bit uh, fatigued, but other than that, nothing. And again, after that second 
uh, shot. That's when it really bumps up uh, your immune uh, system. Um, According to the county public health director here in Los Angeles, Barbara Ferrer, uh, she said, quote, while COVID-19 vaccines provide very effective protection, preventing hospitalizations and deaths against the Delta variant, the strain is proving to be more transmissible and is expected to become more prevalent. Now, I went on a girl's trip this weekend and I was in the OC, Orange County, Republican land. And um uh, and, and also land of very blonde women and a lot of breast implants and, you know, people who look like this. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's so true. It's so true. A lot of plastic surgery. Um, anyway, uh, but my girlfriends and I started to get sucked into the no mask. We're at the pool walking around. No mask in the hotel. No mask at dinner. No mask. Fortunately, in Southern California, we have a very temperate climate. We can sit outside. But we hit the mall before we came home on Sunday. Nobody is wearing masks. And we kind of followed suit. Back in L.A. County, we're kind of putting the masks back on. Went out to dinner last night with my family for my son's birthday. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody makes you wear the masks. Uh, my daughter wore hers. <laughs> she she kind of likes it. Um, I, I think. I don't know. She does her eye makeup. <laughs> She's starting to do that. Uh, and she likes it. But uh, you got to put the, the masks back on. As a matter of fact, I, I got to text my girlfriends during the break. Uh, to remember they're not in the OC anymore. Uh, More uh, added from uh, the county uh, health department, mask wearing remains an effective tool for reducing transmission, especially indoors, where the virus may be easily spread through inhalation of aerosols emitted by an infected person. California has one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. Recall that. More than three in five residents have had at least one vaccine dose, but less than half are fully vaccinated, according to the CDC. County health officials ask that people wear masks indoors in settings such as grocery or retail stores, theaters and family entertainment centers and workplaces when you don't know everyone's vaccination status. The Israeli government, like I had mentioned on Friday, they told their residents got to start wearing those face masks indoors again. They do have an uptick in coronavirus infections, and they do feel that the health authorities there think they uh, they think it's caused by that Delta variant as well. Let's rip another. Nearly all COVID-19 deaths in the United States are now among those who are unvaccinated, according to the Associated Press. A recent AP analysis using government data from May found that breakthrough infections of fully vaccinated people accounted for 0.1 percent. That's 1,200 of more than 853,000 hospitalizations nationwide. Now, data also showed that fully vaccinated people accounted for 0.8% of COVID deaths in May, or 150 out of more than 18,000. The data in the analysis is only gathered from 45 of 50 states who uh, report breakthrough infrastructures. So that means the data may underestimate the infections, again, according to the CDC. What's the big picture on this? Well, today, the CDC uh, director Rochelle Walensky said that adult deaths from COVID-19 are at this point entirely preventable. Why? We have availability to vaccines. So get vaccinated. The Biden administration acknowledged last week it would likely miss its goal of vaccinating 70 percent of U.S. adults with at least one dose by July 4th. But they're getting close. Don't don't be I don't know what you're afraid of. You you have smallpox vaccine, German measles vaccine, tuberculosis vaccine, flu vaccine. My brother thinks it's putting poison in your body. Um, but you know what? I'd rather have that poison than COVID-19. Vaccines aren't going to kill you. COVID-19 could. We know that. Most of us know somebody, and if not know somebody, know somebody who knows somebody who got very sick or died from COVID this past year plus. Let's rope another. 
Now, while saying the case falls squarely in the middle of a constitutional no man's land, a federal judge has upheld a 2018 Florida law that prevents people under the age of 21 from buying guns. The 48-page ruling by Chief U.S. District Judge Mark Walker came more than three years after the Republican-controlled legislature and then-Governor Rick Scott rushed to approve the restriction following a massacre at Parkland's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You remember that killed 17 people, many of which that were children. Now, the NRA challenged the constitutionality of the law. It prevented the sale of rifle, shotguns, and other long guns to people ages 18 to 20. Federal law already barred sales of handguns to people under 21. Walker traced historical gun restrictions and court decisions, and he said he was following a legal precedent. In part, he focused on a landmark 2008 ruling. It was the U.S. Supreme case, case court known as District of Columbia versus Heller. Many of you have heard of that. Now, while the Heller case is broadly considered a major victory for gun rights supporters, it's also said certain longstanding prohibitions uh, prohibitions about guns do not violate the Second Amendment, according to the ruling by Walker. The Heller case cited prohibitions such as things on felons and mentally ill people possessing guns. So Walker concluded that restrictions on 18 to 20-year-old people buying guns were analogous to the restrictions cited in that Heller case. In short, Heller's list reg listed regulations are similar to regulations on the purchase of firearms by 18 to 20-year-olds, all target specific groups that are thought to be especially dangerous with firearms. So 18 to 20, felons and people who have mental illness. Let's rip another. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, and I say that very lightly, he said today he is supportive of going forward with the larger Democratic-only infrastructure bill, but that it shouldn't be linked to a separate bipartisan framework. It was an interview that he had on MSNBC when he said that he had been assuming since day one that Democrats would have to use reconciliation, the budget process allowing them to bypass that 60-vote legislative filibuster to pass a larger infrastructure bill because Republicans don't want to make changes to the tax bill from 2017. He said, quote, we're going to have to work it through reconciliation, which I've agreed that can be done. I just haven't agreed on the amount because I haven't seen everything that everyone is wanting to put in the bill. He also added that the Senate can go through the process of putting together a larger package that includes so-called human infrastructure, knowing the Democrats will probably have to go to reconciliation. And uh, his comments came after he told reporters late last week that he viewed a Democratic-only reconciliation bill as inevitable, handing a significant boost to the strategy by the Democrats. They are still in the early stages of trying to figure out how big to go in a Democratic-only infrastructure bill. They have no room for error in the Senate because they need all 50 of their members and Vice President Harris to pass that infrastructure bill under reconciliation. Manchin's long been viewed as the biggest holdout on greenlighting the Democratic-only bill. I guess he isn't now. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Quick break. We'll be back to you with more ripped right after this. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy to talk. Sorry, my microphone was a bit far away. Uh, let's continue with what's ripped from the headlines before Dr. Robert Shapiro, uh, who, who will join us. And uh, we look forward to that. Uh, but look forward to sharing with you a lot going on in the news. Maricopa, uh, down in Arizona, Maricopa County officials have announced that they'll never again use voting machines turned over to contractors hired by Arizona Senate Republicans to audit 
the 2020 election. The county's Republican-controlled Board of Supervisors responded to Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Back in May last month, she said that she would seek to decertify the machines because the county lost control of them and doesn't know what was done to them. I remember when Anderson Cooper was like talking about this on his show and, you know, I saw a clip online and I thought, I mean, this is like stranger than fiction. It's crazy. It's cray cray. You know what I mean? She said she had grave concern, right? I mean, it was like in the middle of the night, the machines were moved to somewhere in Montana, to some facility. What? Huh? <laughs> she said she had grave. I mean, what is this? Iran? I mean, she said she had grave concerns regarding the security and integrity of these machines. And County Attorney Joseph LaRue wrote back, the board shares your concerns. Senate Republicans issued a subpoena earlier this year demanding the county turn over vote tabulation equipment, along with ballots and a variety of other records, for an unprecedented partisan audit of the county's 2020 vote count. Former President Donald Trump and his supporters have claimed with no evidence that his loss was marred by fraud. Now, the county hired several firms to conduct the audit, led by Cyber Ninjas. They're a Florida-based firm. They have no election experience prior to 2020. And it's led by a huge Trump supporter who has promoted a lot of election conspiracy theories in the past. The audit will not change the outcome of the election, by the way. It may, uh, uh, you know, but many Trump supporters hope it's going to lead to similar views in other battleground states and turn up evidence that Joe Biden's victory is illegitimate. In other words... They're smoking crack. Critics say it's a fruitless attempt to further Trump's narrative about the 2020 election and will diminish faith in the democratic process. Now, this is the county has spent 6.1 million. There are people out of work, people starving, people without health insurance, people dying. But they spent 6.1 million to lease the machines from Dominion Voting Systems in a three-year contract that expires before the 2022 election. There are three one-year renewal options. County officials said in a news release that they're using backup equipment for local elections that are taking place uh, in March and May. They're working with Dominion to replace the subpoenaed machines ahead of elections in November 2021. Fields Mosley, a spokesperson for the County Board of Supervisors, said there will be a cost associated with using new machines, but the exact amount still unclear he said the board hasn't decided whether to seek reimbursement from the senate the senate's contractor said the senate contractor said they finished counting and photographing ballots ending the most visible phase of the review a final report not expected for weeks or months but because it's coming from an undisclosed location in montana i don't think many people republicans included are putting a lot of stock in that can we say it's time it's beyond time to move on Let's rip another. Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday introduced a resolution to establish a House Select Committee with 13 appointed members, five of whom will be chosen after consultation with the GOP to probe the deadly January 6th Capitol riot. Now, why does this matter? Democrats and Republicans still remain at odds over whether the Capitol insurrection warrants a 9-11-style independent commission. After the commission failed to pass the Senate, well, the House Speaker said she would take the matter into her own hands, and she has. The committee will investigate the domestic terrorist attack upon the United States Capitol complex, as well as security failures and the transfer of power, according to the resolution, and she will designate the committee chair. There is so far no deadline for the final report, but the committee will be able to convey interim findings and legislative recommendations. It will also have the power to issue subpoenas. And this is what she is saying, quote, January 6th was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. Absolutely. It is imperative that we establish the truth of that day and ensure such an attack cannot happen again. Absolutely. Uh, Senate Republicans did, did Mitch McConnell a personal favor rather than their patriotic duty and voted against the bipartisan commission negotiated by Democrats and Republicans. But Democrats are determined to find the truth. 
Worth noting, over three dozen Republicans backed the 9-11-style independent commission earlier this month. What's next? Well, the House is expected to vote on the resolution tomorrow. Let's rip another. Speaking of the House, they passed two bills yesterday that would bolster scientific research in an effort to give the U.S. a competitive edge over China. Now, there have been concerns among lawmakers that we are being left behind in science and technology innovation because the Chinese Communist Party keeps gaining ground. That is something President Biden noted in his statement welcoming the House legislation yesterday. The passage of the bills comes less than three weeks after the Senate approved a sweeping China-focused global competition bill that would authorize new funding for the National Science Foundation, the NSF, and establish a new technology directorate. Here are the details. The National Science Foundation for the Future Act passed 345 to 67 in the House. A second bill, the Department of Energy Science for the Future Act, that passed 351 to 68. Bipartisan support there. The legislation would increase funding for the NSF, authorize research for the funding of the Department of Energy's Office of Science. It would also create a new uh, directorate for science and engineering to advance emerging technologies, research-driven solutions to issues including climate change and inequality. They, the president said in a statement that, quote, decades of neglect and disinvestment have left us at a competitive disadvantage as countries across the globe, like China, have poured money and focus into new technologies and industries, leaving the U.S. At risk of being left behind. Another thing China has and does, unity. They're hugely patriotic right now, hugely anti-American, hugely pro-China, and together as a nation on that. By the way, they're going to kick our ass if we don't get it together, seriously, because they're going to be the leader in manufacturing and productivity and uh, can you imagine them being ahead of us in climate change? I mean, or with future, uh, you know, virus vaccinations? Come on now. Um, by rebuilding these domestic sources of strength, we can outcompete China and the rest of the world for years to come, the president said. Representative Mike Waltz, a Republican from Florida, ranking member of the Subcommittee on Research and Technology, said in a statement that science and technology investments were drivers of economic growth and are essential if we want to maintain an edge on our greatest adversary, the Chinese Communist Party. He said for decades, the U.S. has led the world in science and technology and innovation. But right now, China is gaining on us in nearly every statistic. And um, quite frankly, what you're hearing is he um, basically is, uh, is, is agreeing. Now, Marky Mark, you gave me something else. The problem is, where is it? It just, here it is. It just popped up. Thank you. And uh, let's rip another. And after reaching an unprecedented peak, did you see the temperatures in the Pacific Northwest, which is a place where you normally need a little jacket in summer? After reaching an unprecedented peak, the ferocious heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is retreating inland today, sparing some of the biggest cities, including Seattle, from another day of record-breaking heat. This is the worst heat wave on record in the Pacific Northwest. It has a wide range of impacts, uh, damaging public transit infrastructure, uh, rails failed, roads buckled uh, to public health issues. This event is not over, given the continued record high temperatures in areas further away from the coast. A highly unusual weather pattern that statistically has less than a one in several thousand year chance of occurring is starting to shift and weaken slightly over the Pacific Northwest. The area of high pressure aloft is colloquially known as a heat dome, and it will still yield unusually hot temps throughout parts of Canada, parts of Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana over the next few days. Yesterday, the heat dome resulted in temps as high as 25 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit above 
average across multiple states in British Columbia. And this heat combined with a worsening drought helped fuel multiple wildfires across western states yesterday. By the numbers, the heat on Monday shocked meteorologists and climate scientists alike. Portland, Oregon, all-time temp of 112 on Sunday, only to eclipse that. Monday, 116. We haven't hit the highest. Pakistan, one of the areas there, 126. Humans can't stand heat that high. I'm Leslie Marshall. Well, we can stand you sticking with us. Dr. Robert Shapiro is our guest in the house coming up right after this. Don't go away. Technical problems getting our guest on board, but he will be with us soon. So let me tell you a little bit about him and what we're going to be talking about in the last uh, or second half of this hour. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Dr. Robert Shapiro is a friend of mine personally. He's been on the show, become a friend of mine personally, having been on the show for many years. He's chairman of Sonicon. They're an economic advisory firm. He's also senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He's an internationally known economist who has advised, among others, former President Bill Clinton, Vice President Al Gore, a junior British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and then U.S. Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. He was Under Secretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs during the Clinton administration. He uh, is brilliant on all things uh, economic and financial, um, and he uh, wrote a great piece for The Atlantic entitled Post-Pandemic, A Strong Expansion Needs Less Personal Saving or More Government Spending. Post-Pandemic, Dr. Shapiro said, a strong expansion needs less personal saving. What does that mean? Or, well, less personal saving or more government spending. For two generations, he states, economists and other custodians of financial propriety have chastised Americans for not saving enough. Getting the public to pay attention took a pandemic. Facing a real possibility that COVID-19 and the resulting economic havoc might leave them unable to pay their mortgages and feed their families. Moderate, middle-income Americans began saving as much as they could. They're now socking away uh, perhaps too much money uh, to support a healthy expansion for the U.S. economy as a whole. And we're going to talk to Dr. Shapiro about that. Hi, Dr. Shapiro. Good to see you. Hi, Leslie. Sorry uh, my Skype was acting up today. (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. Uh, technology, you know, these things happen. I was talking about your great piece to, uh, for the Atlantic post-pandemic, a strong expansion needs less personal saving or more government spending. And I just started to go over so, uh, some of the material, um, which, you know, it, you know, you write about and, and talk about, and you have mentioned before that, you know, we as Americans have been chastised for not saving enough, but now you think we, we need to stop spending saving and spend more to help stimulate that economy, if I get it right. Am am I correct in that? That's absolutely right. You know, most saving occurs because there's something that people want to accomplish. They want to be able to go on vacation. They want a down payment for their house. They want to send their kid to college. They want to save for retirement. Uh, What we've seen during the pandemic um, is not saving for a particular end, but rather saving what, what's called precautionary saving, saving because people were terrified that they wouldn't be able, either because they got sick or because their business closed down, they wouldn't be able to, to make their rent or their mortgage payments. And so the saving rate, which was seven and a half percent 
um, in 2019 shot up to 26% in the second quarter. It's mm -hmm. averaged almost 20%. 20% of all your disposable income, that's after taxes, has been saved. Um, we haven't seen those kinds of saving rates since World War II. Now, saving is a good thing. But remember, always keep in mind that any dollar saved is a dollar not spent. Right. And that means that Americans suddenly were reducing all their consumer demand by 20%. Now, that would have been a catastrophe. We'd be in a deep, deep recession today, but for the remarkable fact that Washington, under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, uh, got the economics of the pandemic right. They didn't, the Trump administration didn't get anything about the pandemic right, but they got the economics right. And the economics said, if people are saving at such extraordinary rates, we have to give them more income. So they will can also, so they can both save, which they're gonna do because they're terrified, and continue to spend. And so we gave not only these very large add-ons for people who were unemployed, but for the first time in American history, we sent nearly every household three tranches of free money. We gave checks to everybody, to 90% of the country. We have never done that in our history. And, and you think that economically was a wise thing to do? Because, you know, there's a lot of Republicans right now poo-pooing it or trying to stop the money that would stop anyway in September, but trying to stop uh, you know, more federal unemployment, you know, perks on top of the right. uh, state unemployment benefits for recipients. Uh, but you, you think that was the right thing to do under both the current and the former administration, whether it was in the form of PPP for companies or the stimulus checks for individuals? Not just the right thing to do. It was absolutely necessary. We would be in a very deep recession today had they not done that. And the Republicans supported it so long as Trump was in office. They only stopped supporting it when they lost the White House and the Congress. The fact is, you know, Leslie, we live in a political universe in which one party says, well, what's good for the country will also be good for the governing party. We're not governing, so we're against it, even though it's what's good for the country. And that the, their opposition to this is a very cynical form of politics. But the fact is, um, they don't control the Congress, so we got the big uh, relief act, but we still, we still have very high savings. And we, we talk about, when we talk about that, I get it, because Dr. Shapiro, full disclosure, my, my husband, I think you know, is a surgeon, and as yes. an orthopedic surgeon, Oh, um, over 90% of his or 90 plus percent of his surgeries are elective. And yeah. when they sat down and had a meeting and said no more elective surgeries, and we didn't know how long, we had just paid off all our debt. We had reduced our savings. I was biting my nails. A lot of us didn't know if we would keep our jobs. How would we keep our jobs? Um, and, you know, how, you know, I mean, you know, how would people going to, I certainly, although I host this show, I'm not a host on television. It's sort of like, if I got to be like, a, you know, I mean, we all, and yeah. you start to bite your nails. I saved like never before. Um, I, 
And I'm very happy to report we're finally adults, you know, like our children will be able to go to college. We will be able to retire. Uh, I may and I may even be able to renovate my kitchen and TV room, which I'd like to do. But but that's what what I'm saying is people did save. But don't you think now because people are starting to take their masks off, go out more, we're seeing the numbers traveling, that they're also starting to touch upon that money to, 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 you know, to, to that rainy day account. Uh, for vacations, for home renovations. Um, and because some people I think are finding, hey, you know, I like working from home. I need to build a proper office. Do, do you think that spending is going to happen? Because I, I know that you, you know, you wrote about a high level of personal savings threat and strong expansion uh, into 2022, 2023. So we're going to take a break. When you come back, I want you to address that. I apologize for the long question, but I know there are people out there that are afraid yep. to touch that money they saved. But then it. there are many people that are like, well, this is what I saved it for. Right. I, I have enough now to, you know, to pay two or three or six months rent or mortgage. But I also have enough to vacation or I also have enough to right. do, you know, have that home office um, open up that business I wanted to, you know, try opening. I mean, the list goes on. So let's talk about that right after this with our guest, Dr. Robert Shapiro. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's in the house. You should be in the house as well. We'll be back with him right after this. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. How you doing? Enjoying watching me on natural. I just saw myself on Twitter. Scary. Scary yeah. without the TV makeup and uh, the hair. But, you know, it is summer. <laughs> Dr. Robert Shapiro is in the house, chairman of Sonicon. They're an economic advisory firm. He's a senior fellow as well at the Madonna, McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. And he is former undersecretary of commerce for economic affairs in the Clinton administration. Dr. Shapiro also wrote a great piece we're talking to him about today in The Atlantic. Post-pandemic, a strong expansion needs less personal saving or more government spending. Thank you for uh, being with us, doctor, and for holding, and welcome back. Now, you were talking about, you know, saving is great, but too much saving can threaten a strong expansion into 2022 and 2023. Do you think people are going to dip into that money that they saved to do some of the things I mentioned before the break, uh, whether it's, you know, build a home office or renovate that thing in the house, all of us being home, I think, put more, um, you know, uh, wear and tear on our homes or our apartments and uh, condos uh, and, uh, you know, uh, townhouses. And uh, in addition to that, a lot of people wanting to travel to see relatives or just to get the heck out of the, you know, four walls they've been looking at. Do you, do you think that will help? Because I know that you talk about personal savings threatening a strong expansion into 2022 and 2023. Okay. Well, there, there are a couple points that we should keep in mind here, Leslie. One is that uh, the saving rate is coming down. But the saving rate is still um, about 12.5% in May. Um, we don't see people spending down the existing saving yet. Um, and, you know, it's only been two months since people got very large checks. Uh, $1,400 per adult, $3,000 per child. Uh, these were very big checks. And... Um, so the question is, how will people respond 
when they accept that they're not going to be any more checks. Now, I expect saving to come down. I expect so that people will begin to spend down some of their savings. The question is, will it be enough? We're not, it's not that we're flirting with a recession. What we're flirting with here is the kind of low, slow expansion that set the stage for Donald Trump's election in 2016. That's what concerns me. Not that we're going to go into a recession, but that we're going to have, um, you know, one, one or one to two percent growth in 2023 and 2024 instead of five percent growth, which we are perfectly capable of. The May numbers, personal income numbers, came out uh, last Friday, so they're brand new. They showed consumer spending flat. And which was, and it had been growing at a reasonable rate, fueled by those checks. Now, uh, you you had written, Doctor, that if the spending continues like this, um, to be flat, if the savings continues, that Congress should approve a lot of additional federal spending to make up for that shortfall. Can you speak to that and what you think they should be spending? And you might like some of these big ticket items Democrats are putting forth right now uh, because of that. Well, you know, for an economist, investing $2 trillion in infrastructure is frankly a no-brainer. First of all, we can afford to do it because interest rates are so low. Second of all, we can afford to pay for it over time because uh, particularly through corporations and their shareholders, because you know, while median wages and salaries have risen about 3%, 3.5% over the last year. Um, the S&P 500 has gone up 40%. So it's going up more than 10 times the rate. So you can tax corporations and their, their shareholders without having a meaningful effect on their consumption. What's important here is to keep incomes going and to continue to generate jobs. Now, infrastructure, and that's not just roads and bridges and ports and airports. You know, we got the worst airports in the advanced world right now and the worst highway system in the advanced world. It's also broadband for everyone. It's also modernizing the electric grid. Um, it is um, all of the modern forms of infrastructure. And the importance of infrastructure is that is that modern and efficient infrastructure makes all businesses more productive. Makes now, all now, if that's, and I believe you, doctor, anything you tell me with the economy or finance, I believe you 100%. So somebody watching us right now or listening to us now or later um, might say, well, you know, Republicans say Democrats are all about big government and big government is bad and a lot of the spending is bad. And we even hear people on the Republican side now who are dragging their feet and not, and not wanting to come to the table with infrastructure or not wanting to give their yay or, or a sign with regard to infrastructure. Uh, you know, they constantly say the price tag. But a lot of these people went to fancy universities and uh, they they know the information that you're saying right now and they know that to be true. Um, so what, why, why would they, I mean, why would anybody in their right mind, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, as a politician, 
not want to do something that's going to stimulate the economy, knowing the saving that's going on. Um, and that's also going to be a job creator and also make it look like, you know, they sent you to Washington to do something and play nice with others and you got the job done. Well, you know, this could certainly help some Republican members of Congress, but it always helps. Good times always help the party in power. And uh, the fact is the Democrats are in power right now. And that has created a kind of reflexive opposition because our political system has become so twisted, frankly. You know, the, the greatest infrastructure program of modern times um, was passed under Dwight Eisenhower. He built the interstate highway system and it was passed by a Republican Congress. <laughs> um, and because we needed it and we'd come out of the war and um, Democrats supported it as well as Republicans. Um, well, we've come out of a different kind of war right now. And, you know, be, we are saving, we have been saving at warlike rates. And, and, and doctor, doctor, I'm sorry to interrupt because I just have so many questions for you, but because you just touched upon that, the monthly personal income data that you wrote about from the Bureau of Economic Analysis actually shows that Americans' total wage and salary earnings, and I was surprised at this, have risen month after month yes. since last spring. Yes. So why are people scared to spend and why are people saving more when they are making, most people have actually made the same or even more Yes. Because, you know, you have what you made and then you might have some help from the federal government as well. That's you're absolutely right. You know, total personal income grew 7.6 percent last year. And that includes the government, uh, the government checks um, as as compared to about 4 percent in 2019. So people are getting more money um, and most people's incomes went up. Not only did total wages and salaries, but median wages and salaries went up and not just for, uh, you know, privileged people, you know, who can work remotely in finance or whatever. Uh, they went up for those with a high school diploma or less. They went up for people in rural areas. They went up for minorities. They went up for women. Um, they went up for every group and as strongly as for the more privileged groups uh, for every group that has tended to lag. Um, and so that tells us just how frightened Americans were of this pandemic. Mm. Um, this is, uh, you know, it's something we've never experienced before. No one alive has experienced before. And um, uh, people were afraid not just of getting sick, they were afraid of losing everything. Um, and losing their homes, losing well, their apartments. Because we only have two minutes left, you had talked about consumer spending being flat. You had talked about the latest data in the month of May last month showing personal income down 2.7%. Yes. Um, and you write about heading off a lackluster expansion. You say something's going to have to change. Um, so what has to change? Do you feel the infrastructure investments proposed by this administration could do the job? Yes, I do. Uh, it's large enough, it's targeted in the right place, it creates jobs, it creates demand, it's big, it's big enough. You know, I'd be concerned if it was just the 500 billion over eight years that the Republicans are, have said they're willing to take. The president needs to move that up 
to a minimum of 1.2 trillion. And I think at that level, I'd like to see 2 trillion. Um, we've got more than 2 trillion worth of need in infrastructure. Uh, but from an, economy, from an economic point of view, uh, in order to keep a healthy expansion going, we need, I think, a minimum of 1.2 and ideally. I want you to just say yes or no. Are you worried about inflation? Um, a bit. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll talk more about that next time you're on. Dr. Uh, Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon, uh, also senior fellow of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University and former undersecretary of commerce for economic affairs in the Clinton administration. Oh, I love you, Dr. Mwah. Thank you for being with us. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you to Marky Mark Romaldi, our executive producer. Without him, I would not be me. The show would not be what it is and everything else. Mark, have a great day. We'll be back with you soon. <laughs>